Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Now, most of us are human. Evaluate our lives and the lives of other people on the basis of Now, when people rely, however, on merely the ability to understand that that life is Consider these two rabbits. Both of these rabbits are excited about their parents. As wisely has been quoted, you can't judge a book by its cover, and you certainly can't judge a carrot by its stick. Our Lord Jesus continually was forced to make a way from this to the people to clarify the true nature of biblical Christianity. For example, in John chapter 7, he was forced to reply to some fake religionists to set them straight on what a Messiah really looks like. Look in John chapter 7, verse 24, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous There is a huge and a judgmental and Now, not only do we evaluate others on the basis of what we see physically, but also we often accept acceptance with God based merely and largely on On the husband, I was speaking with a hardworking man. I had talked to him about his life. Christian, much about that. He said, Well, I actually never gone to the organized religion. I basically taught me I live by this motto, and that is just be a good person. I told him, I said, You know, honestly, I appreciate that answer. 
Because, truthfully, we need more people in this world to try to be good people. That's a good thing. I said the only problem is this. What is good? if your goodness is based on the people you see, then you might be okay. But if my goodness is based on what God says goodness is, then maybe there might be some challenges. And frankly, that's indicative of many people over the years that I have been talking. Now, in this week's Sermon on the Mount, the theme is simply going to be this, and actually for the next couple of weeks, the theme is going to be this, that the outside of our life is only validated in its form as it is representative of what is on the inside. And what's on the inside is always God's concern, in addition to what's on the outside. Of course, God is concerned about the outside because it's with our hands that we reach out to people and to God's voice that we speak to people. So, external is the inside. But God is equally concerned, very concerned, about the inside. The wise Solomon spoke to this even way back before the time of Christ even. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse number 2, he said, All the ways of men and women are hopeful, but the Lord, he's the one that weighs the spirit. He doesn't say he just weighs the hands or the actions of the hands or the steps of the feet, but he weighs the motives of the ways of going on. Jesus explained, amplified in the next few weeks here, all the wonderful laws of Scripture, the guidelines, all the wonderful commands of Scripture. And he said, I want you to understand that when you read it on the surface, you might get one of these things. But if you look deeply into the infinite and to the spiritual nature of it, you realize that God is very concerned about our lives, and he's also concerned about what's going on in our lives. That's why when Jesus says here to this group that he's preaching to, I want you to know that murder is not just something that some people do on the outside, but in fact, a whole lot more people might be guilty of murder if they realize that God was looking at them. I don't want you to be in that situation. So, our Lord gives us a positive look at a very serious subject. So this morning, would you join me in prayer? For those of you that are out there in this uh, online world of our family, we want you to know we love you. We're praying for you right now. Father, we thank you. Thank you for this great subject. Lord, I just so look forward to worshiping with my brothers and sisters that already enjoy the fellowship, laughing, praying, weeping. Now, Lord, today, would you collect our hearts around this very important subject? Oh, God, I'm wondering if maybe we're more guilty of this than we might think. Lord, I pray you for us. Father, be with our souls. And for those that are not feeling well today, Lord, would you just seek a healing now? You are the healer. We trust all healing comes from you. Read Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. There is blessing, Scripture says, that comes from the hearing of God's word. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So, we're going to read it together out of the authorized version, out of the King James Version. So, we'll be reading verses 21 to 26. I want you to read it out loud if you possibly can. Out of all our words, all right? Ready, begin. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother, without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou in thy gift to the altar, there remember thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and 
Go thy way. First, be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Be with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way. Lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer. Thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out there, for thou hast paid the uttermost part. It seems to me a little unique, that Jesus, 2,000 years ago, on a rugged Galilean hillside, there he was speaking, he told to his disciples, although we also said that it is multitudes. And specifically, God says that Jesus spoke to all It could have been several thousand. In fact, we estimated at the beginning of this message that statistics uh, or the different uh, way that science has proven that Jesus could have probably preached to as many as a hundred thousand people. Probably not that many people are there, but there are probably thousands. It seems unique to me that whether he was speaking to hundreds or thousands, that he would take time out of this message to address the subject of murder. Typically, we don't preach to the average people who are or not and I hit too many people on that. Yet, Jesus very clearly says this is an important topic. Now, let's backtrack just a moment to the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins with these wonderful titles. He says, first of all, you are to be poor in spirit. Always recognize you need the power of God. Then you can mourn for yourself. Be humble by your failures and your often failures. Then, happier people that are meek, that is, that they submit themselves to the blessed word of God. He goes on to say that if you hunger and you thirst for the righteousness of God, you'll be sick. So, he continues on eight wonderful attitudes, and then he says, now, as a result of this Christ-like kingdom character, you're going to find out that you're going to be persecuted. In the midst of your persecution, however, I want you to be the salt and the light. I want you to bring the blessed Word of God, the preserving salt of the Word of God, and the glorious light of the gospel to this world. Now, some of those people sitting that, there that day might be thinking, what is this kind of a, a unique uh, twist on things? Have we not heard it quite like this? In fact, later on they would say he spoke with one having authority that's different. And so some might have imagined that Jesus was setting aside the laws of Scripture and was giving them something new. And Jesus clarified, he said, look, in no way, shape, or form am I if I trying to put aside or to say that what God has given us is not right, I'm only trying to amplify it and clarify it and get the real meaning of it. Because frankly, he said, and he might have pointed out to some Pharisees and all their religious regalia, he said, these guys have so clouded scripture that it's hard for me to really know exactly what the Bible is saying. So, He's going to give several examples of that. He said, now, we all know what the law teaches. It's good. But I'm going to clarify this so that you understand. It's probably a lot different than you might imagine. And he starts with an accurate understanding of society, one of the society's most basic morals, and that is this. You must never murder another person. It really doesn't matter what language group, what culture, what uh, people grew makes, makes really no difference what era. Throughout all the history of mankind, there's usually one, maybe the, the most one basic law, and that is this, you should never kill another person. And so Jesus said, look, I am not trying in any way, shape, or form to disregard what God is teaching about this. I'm just trying to turn on the torchlight for each one. Hallelujah. Turn the lights on. 
Pessimus sees no light at the time. Optimus sees light at the end of the sentence. The realist sees that the light is actually a train. The train driver sees three fools in the back. So, let's turn the light on of the scripture, Thou shalt not kill. Do it say, first of all, now, let me just say, this is a very full sermon. I really, I was thinking as I was going through it. All these things need to be said, but God isn't way too much for one thing. So I may have to end up talking about But you can give me the podcast, or you can watch the video later. All right, do it say, is interpreting God's law against murder. And by the way, I will tell you, if there is a misinterpreted passage in the New Testament, this has got to be one of them. I have heard everything in the world shared with Paulie. I've never heard it before. Right. In fact, I, must, I think I've heard it wrong, whatever it looks like. All right, well, let's see if we can get a scriptural understanding. Not that I'm some kind of Jesus, but I feel like we have a good sense of you would say in interpreting God's law against number one. The first mistake is that this law is only and merely external. You've heard that by old times, thou shalt not kill. Whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Very straightforward. The average citizen sitting there 2,000 years ago on that Galilean hillside, don't murder. Pretty straightforward. Doesn't seem like uh, should be questioned there. And I'm sure that most people, and certainly the faith religionists, probably their internal jury and judge has said, Yep, I'm good. I'm clean on that one. Not guilty. And in fact, the Jewish legal system was the best in the world at the time. No other culture or group even came close. There were courts in every major city. There were oftentimes itinerant judges that went to the smaller towns and villages. Typically, the judgeship was by 23 minutes. And these 23 would decide and they would uh, adjudicate what was going on. And, if necessary, they would carry out the justice. It was a good system of law. And so when God told mighty Moses in the Old Testament, that wonderful six of ten major commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, you know the verse, Thou shalt not kill. Most people felt like, okay, I'm good. I don't have to feel guilty right now because uh, I've never certainly killed anybody. By the way, just to clarify what God is saying in Exodus 20, verse 13, what he's saying is, thou shalt not murder. Killing, for example, in a just war, to defend your nation or to defend your family, is certainly not what God is referring to here. God actually says quite a bit about murder in Scripture. You may know, for example, way before even what we call the law. Let me just clarify. I think there needs to be some interpretation on this now. When we say the word law in Scripture, it's not just meaning one thing. Actually, there's at least seven or eight or nine different things that it could mean. It's up to us to discern the passage. For example, sometimes when God uses the term law, he's referring to the first five books of Scripture, the Pentateuch, as it's called. Sometimes he's referring to just the Ten Commandments. Sometimes he's referring to all the Old Testament. Other times the entire Bible. Sometimes just the ceremony of the Old Testament. Sometimes Jesus talks about the laws, meaning the fake religion tradition, not God's law, good law. Sometimes scripture is referring to the laws of creation, like the law of gravity. Sometimes it's just a law of humanity, like uh, the law of sin. Law of emotion. And so you can't just take one understanding of the word law. So I say this because don't fall prey to those antinomians who falsely say something like, We're not under the law. Just 
so that they don't have to uh, not do something they don't like. The truth of the matter is, we're not under the law of sin, perhaps, but we're not under the ceremonial law. That doesn't mean we're to avoid all the things that God said in the law. For example, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 is considered God's law because it's part of it. Genesis 9, 6, crystal clear, God said, Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall be his blood shed. That's probably was one of the greatest uh, proofs for capital punishment right there. God, in the earliest days of civilization, instituted capital punishment as a protection for society. If everybody could just kill whenever they wanted to, it might be husband wasn't pleasing, or wife that wasn't pleasing, or kids, or your neighbor, or whatever, you just get rid of them. I mean, that would have been just so destructive. Then God gives the reason why it's important that you never murder, because people are made in the image of God, as he says in that verse. To take the life of a human being is to then assault the very image of God. It means that if you could, you would kill God. That is serious. Now, the prevailing opinion to the people that day, 2,000 years ago, on that hillside, the prevailing opinion probably was this. Okay, that is talking about the afterbirth, not the thought of birth. Jesus is going to clarify, no, in fact, there is a very deep spiritual meaning to this law. For example, the Apostle Paul clarified how important it was to see the spiritual nature of the law. Turn to read Romans chapter 7. Here in Romans chapter 7, which, by the way, Paul, a very, very studious person of the law before he got saved, realized once he got born again, once Jesus came into his heart and the Holy Spirit filled him, he got a whole new sense about the importance of God's law. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Listening to some Christians today, you don't think that the law is bad. God says, God forbid, of course not. Nay, I have not known sin, but by the law. Now notice how he clarified love. He said, I have not known love, which is an internal emotion. Had I not, had it not been said, thou shalt not come. So we're getting some understanding here now. The action of covetousness is certainly bad, but also the inner motivation behind covetousness, which is lust, also is equally bad. Verse 14, he says, we know that the law is spiritual. Ah, there we go. The law is not just external. No way. The law is spiritual. The problem is, we don't like the law because we're carnal and we're sold under sin. So here, Jesus is telling them. He said, now look, these are spiritual things that God has been talking about. And so notice how he starts in verse 21. You have been, you have heard that it was said by the of Now here's where I've heard people just go off So many that they say, well, this is Moses and the law is Jesus. No way. Absolutely could not be. That. I'll tell you why in just a moment. Jesus was not referring to Moses or any other prophet or any other Old Testament Bible author. No way. He was talking about wacky people who were adding to the Bible, subtracting from the Bible, people had all these fake religions. He said, Look, these people in old time will have you believe this is from God. He said, Absolute human error. It's kind of like some of the common things that we have today that sometimes act like they're absolutely true, but may not be so true. Like, for example, the pen is mightier than the sword. Well, when it comes right down to it, I think I'd rather have a sword or a gun than a pen if it comes down to it, right? Or, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt. Whoever came up with that never went to junior high school, I can tell you, considerably. Jesus is not saying, but now we have a new dispensation and we don't need the Bible. We have a new covenant. 
he wasn't saying that God had it wrong back then, but now I'm going to tell you how it really is. That would be then contradicting something that God said was perfect. Remember in that? Look at Psalms that says the law of the Lord is perfect. If it's perfect, then how could it be wrong? So, Jesus was not saying, and by the way, he had just said a couple verses before, I think it was 17, chapter, chapter 5, he said, I did not come to this to play the law, but to fulfill it. He said, no. He said, I'm not talking about Moses or any other Bible character. What I'm saying is that a lot of crazy whack jobs out there are saying everything about murder, but I'm telling you, God has a deeper meaning than you can That's what he's saying. The first mistake is that this is only external. The second mistake is that this law was only municipal, meaning it's a public legal law. Some might argue that when God said out to not kill, this was to kill to be a danger of the judgment. He is meaning a court system issue, that somehow the Lord was alluding to just the law of the land. This was a political issue. That Jesus' no murder law was merely for legal purposes. As if governments were the only ones who were smart enough to know right from wrong. Some people have the idea that Jesus was simply saying, we should let the government decide what is right and wrong. Well, we all know that there are many laws and mandates that governments make where they say certain things are illegal, like going to church reading your Bible, like friends, that are perfectly moral and right to do. For example, in North Korea today, according to Christian organization, open doors. North Korea persecutes more Christians than any other country in the world. People, including children, as young as three years old, are being sent to prison every week. We estimate between 50 and 70,000 Christians being held in North Korean prisons. Consider this sweet lady, three young publicly executed on June 16, 2009, for giving out Bibles. While she gave out Bibles, she was then executed. Her husband was sent to prison camp as well as her children. Well, there are, are many laws that the government say are wrong, but in fact, there's certainly more. We don't think that's what the scriptures say. Also, sometimes governments say something is perfectly legal, but it's 100% wrong. For example, consider just, just this past week, a Florida judge granted a 17-year-old anonymous Tampa Florida teenagers her appeal back by Planned Parenthood to seek an abortion without parental consent. Friends, how crazy and sad that is. Now, if that same teenager was to go on a field trip with her school to local museum, she would have to have parental consent. But to have an abortion, she would not. Now, if God fears Jesus proclaiming people, let's make it loud and clear that a person's lifestyle must exceed a nation's limit. Bible morals is what we're looking for, not a nation's limit. Here's what God is saying. Two mistakes interpreting God's law is Now, we need to know that God's commands about murder are much bigger than we might have Two warnings he gives. First of all, Wrath, anger, is heartbreaking. Verse 22. When it is, first of all, unfounded. But I say unto you, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause. Jesus said, you need to know that wrath, hostile, hateful anger is actually heartbreaking. When you are angry with your brother without a cause. The phrase, our brother, isn't meaning just a fellow Christian, it's really a brother, a human brother, a human, uh, like human. Christian or not, male or female, any human, young or old, any group, 
God says, no, you should not murder anybody. Everybody's covered by this. The Apostle Paul, I think, weighed in on this when he was preaching to Athens. In Acts chapter 17, verse number 26, Paul said something very clear, and I think very appropriate even for today in this politically charged issue today. And he has made of one blood all nations of men, for it is well on the face of the earth. So many of these groups out there today use the term racist. By the way, people on the left and the right use that wrongly. Friends, you need to know there's only one race, that is the human race. Paul said all people are brothers. We are all related to Adam and Eve, and God is the Father of all people. Now, Jesus is distinguishing here. He is saying all people are our brothers. Nobody should be killed for any reason. Everybody is just as equal value as God's eyes. He is saying death. Yes, here is important to understand that now Jesus is distinguishing here. There is a healthy behavior, which is an outrage, and it's even a good emotion. I want you to understand when it's not founded, when it's unfounded, it's wrong. It needs to be some reason behind it. For example, David in Psalm chapter 7 says, it's important for us to realize that when God is protecting someone, it's okay for him to have anger. If you remember, Paul, Saul had, was misjudging, he was hurting the people of his nation. My defense is God, verse 10, which saveth the upright is Thank God he's the judge. Verse 11, he judges the righteous and is angry with the wicked every day. And so, anger is not especially wrong if it is outrage or indignation. Sometimes it's actually commendable. But overwhelmingly, most often, when we are angry, it's, as the Bible says, without cause. That means without any good effect, or any good purpose. It is antagonizing, hostile, spiteful, unrestrained, or harsh, or it is actually, God said, it is heartbroken. It might be when we're so angry at our children for something that they could not help. That was a simple mistake that, frankly, we ourselves have been guilty of. Or when we get a devouring, vicious, chewing out spirit over trivial matters. I mean, it is constantly an angry person. And Jesus said, folks, look, stop that. That is heart murder. That is very serious. Be careful about that. Rash anger is heart murder. It's unfounded. Number two, when it's unfairable. It's just plain mean and nasty of no purpose. And to show our superiority or to give us a personal peace of mind, we become a, as they call it, a Karen out there. Just so angry everybody. Paul made that abundantly clear in Romans chapter 12. He said, Dearly beloved, verse 19, Avenge not yourself, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. You and I are incapable of exacting revenge without the righteous wrath. The story is told of a soldier who was fighting over the wrath. He received a letter from his girlfriend who said she was breaking up in the letter. She asked him to return the picture he had sent of herself because she needed it for her bridalness. The soldier was heartbroken. He told his friends about the breakup, about the request. Someone came up with this idea. So the whole platoon gave him pictures of all their girlfriends and told him to send that to his ex-girlfriend with this message. For the life of me, I can't remember which picture is yours. So please remove your picture from all of these pictures I'm sending and return the rest to me. Well, I'm sure she got the message. But the truth, however, revenge is the Lord. We need to leave it to the big That anger is heartbreaking. It's when it's unsound, charitable. Number three, when it's unhinged. Excessive, violent, I would kill that person if I could, frankly. 
really taking the first step towards it. King killed his brother in anger, but it all began when he made his first step towards it. And Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, talking to his young disciples, these wonderful young 20 something year old young man, for the most part, just out there wanting to serve God. And he said, if you don't get this right, destroy the rest of your life. Notice what he said. Right of the heart, proceeds evil things. Lot, murder. Murder comes from the heart. Adultery. Nobody just murders on the surface. No, it started with the heart. Heart murder is very unique. Heart murder is unique in that the murderer is actually Rash, anger, and heart murder. Now, we're going to move on. Now, this is where the message is going to get uncomfortable. If the message so far hasn't been a problem for you, there, buckle up your seat. Rash anger is permanent. Verse 22. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka. Raka is a scornful word, it is permanent. Now, this is one of those strange Bibleisms. It is the only place in the entire Bible that the word is used. It's not Hebrew, it's not Greek, it's Aramaic. And it's not even a translatable word. It's a colloquialism. In English, they would call it an anapathia. You know what an anapathia is? That's not a bad word. Um, it is a, it means when the word sounds like the act, like point or buzz. It's not a it doesn't come from any word. It just is a word that's just like a sound. That's what they say, scholars say, that this word rock is. When someone would say rock out of somebody, it's not a translatable word. Now, there is a definition for it, which basically means empty headed. It is probably the most derogatory. Think of like the worst four letter word people say about somebody. It's like a vile four letter word. So when someone would say this rock out of somebody, it was saying that they are absolutely inferior to you in every way. That's kind of Solomon warned about this kind of people in Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 24. Proud and haughty, scorner is his name, who dealeth in proud wrath. There are some people who cannot be handled to be slighted in the least. You cross them, and boy, they just blow up like that tongue of Volcano here a few weeks ago, a tidal wave destroying everything in its way. Boy, aftermath, they just blow up and then whatever happens, happens. That is Raka is a scornful word and it comes from pride. Now, the second word is much more understandable than the word fool. Whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be deemed of hell back. Now he's going to weigh in on something a lot more close to home. Bigotry. Tolerance, discrimination. Whosoever shall say, Thou fool, people there is You might recognize the word there for us. It is the word we get for moron. Whoever shall say, Thou moron, about a certain group, a certain people, he said, That's some serious business right there. Now, Jesus refined this definition, however, so that we need to understand it's not always wrong to use the word moral. That's not what he's saying. For example, in Matthew 23 and verse 17, talking about false religionists, Jesus said, Thou moron. Thou moron. That's that word again. In Matthew chapter 25, you remember him telling the story, the, par- the parable of the ten uh, unmarried ladies there. And in that verse, he said, Five were morons. What he was saying was that they are foolish. Now, gracious warnings by a loving God, and maybe a loving Christian, who tells a person that what they're doing is foolish, certainly isn't wrong, and it's not what this is meaning. We're talking about hate, and those are worlds apart. We're talking about somebody who murders another person. They murder their reputation, they murder them in spirit, but they, they hate a person for whatever reason. And let me just say loud and clear this morning, any true racism, sexism, ageism has 
Bible-believing, Christ-followers life. Absolutely no question. God's people ought to be above that. Now Jesus pulls up one. He said, if you call some group a moron, then he said, you are in danger of hell by He's not saying if you say those words, you're going to hell. What he's saying is, it is indicative of a heart that's bad. Bad heart. If you are malicious, spiteful, and cruel, it shows that you have a heart of murder. You may remember the New Testament, the Pharisees, 40 different times it says they were planning to kill Jesus. 40 different times. They would go to their temple, they would do all their religion, and yet, privately, they hated Jesus. They were showing that they were, in fact, not followers of God. Now our God is going to get real practical. Two reasons for keeping your heart right in God. Quality of your spiritual life. Because part of worship is serious self-examination. Take time to read that scripture there. You understand what he's saying. He is saying uh, that it is possible for people to, uh, to come have all your religious external exercises, but in fact, you have a heart that's not right with God. And he said, you need to know this is going to injure your walk with God. Now, he said, if you come to church and you remember you've done somebody some harm, you should make sure you take care of it or somebody's done you some harm. For example, in Mark 11, verse 25, when you stand praying, forgive. If you have ought against somebody, then forgive them. Put under the blood and move on. Now, I just say, when somebody has hurt you, they've injured you, I don't think going forward you have to be a hacker about it either. What we say around here is that um, we're not going to have any malice, but we do have a good thing. We're not going to let them, if it's possible, let them do that again. But I don't think what Jesus is saying here is you remember that somebody has injured you. I think what he's talking about is that you have injured somebody else. Thou remembers you've done something. You've said something, done something to damage someone's person, family, reputation, religiously. Then he said, you need to make amends both with God and with people. This is not a small matter because if you have hatefully gone after that person, you need to know you have to get that thing right with God. I will tell you there's nothing like the freedom that comes from getting those things off your chest. You're going to walk outside and it's going to be a beautiful blue. Your life between you and the Savior. I said, old him, nothing but sweet and soul. There's a second reason why our quality life, because nothing pleases God which comes from the heart of God. Leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way. Oh, you could sing so good, angels would weep and sound in your mouth. You could preach so powerful that the pastor would be astounded. You could pray down fire from heaven, but if you're a mean, mean, and nasty, and spiteful, and hateful person, God said that your ministry to God is like a sounding brass, as Paul said, like a tinkling cymbal. All sounds and no sound. Paul reminded young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, he said, when you get inside a church, tell people to lift their hands when they pray. I will therefore, then, lift up holy hands, but do it without wrath. I don't want people lifting their hands like they're some kind of holy person, when in fact they have a heart full of hate. He said, let it be without any wrath. The quality of your spiritual life is important because obedience is very important. And he said, it's all good to have all these outward religions, but make sure you're an obedient person too. The apostle there speaks of Jesus. I think it's maybe in a sense referencing what happened in the Old Testament, First Samuel chapter 15 and verse 22. The prophet Samuel came to King Saul and he said, you know, I told you what to do, but you're not doing it. To obey is better than sacrifice. Because disobedience is an act of heart rebellion. It's a form of self-idolatry. It is just trying to look good for other people. You don't even care what God says. 
So Jesus is saying here, make sure that you do the right thing when you get into church. So, and by the way, this is no get out of jail free for, you know, like, oh, I don't have to go to church because I have something against somebody. No, God's not saying you don't have to go to church or you don't have to serve God because you have something in your life. Oh, you got to make it right. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, two reasons for keeping your heart right for God is in, for the spiritual quality of your, uh, the quality of your spiritual life, and for the safety of your temporal life. Because we expose our family, our future, if, in fact, you have injured someone's body, goods, or reputation, it is our wisdom and certainly our duty to protect our family and to make things right as quickly and as far as we possibly can. You know, apologizing respectfully is a When you apologize, don't point your finger at the other person and say, I'm sorry you took it the wrong way. And say, say I'm sorry. The part that I play. Say words like, I regret that I did that, or I'm sorry, or as a Christian, I just feel as though God would have me to tell you I'm sorry. Too many people ruin their estate, ruin their marriage, ruin their business, you name it, because they never hang on to some of them which could have been avoided had they swallowed their pride and simply made. A beautiful, simple, humble apology. You can look at Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, and a good reminder there. Solomon said, Quickly, go humble yourself. That's really what he comes down to. Then he says that if you don't do this, you're going to be given over to the officer. You might be getting to the court system, they'll take your money. In fact, he said, You might even be cast in the prison. That doesn't sound fun at all. All because we were so stubborn that we were simply apologize. We expose our future and our family to harm. And the second reason is because after death, it will be too late. Notice what it says in verse 25. While we are in the way. While we are in the way, meaning while we're living. While we're living, you need to take care of this. Because someone may die. And you never have a chance to make it I cannot tell how many people I have seen over the years who have come by the casket of a loved one or a friend weeping and sobbing because they were unable to confess the wrong they have done that person. Folks, don't live the rest of your life feeling like you wish you could go back and say you were sorry. Take care of it. Now, personally, as I see these verses, I get a sense that Jesus is spiritual. I think he's saying here, in addition to the practical, folks, you're going to face Jesus today. You're going to face me as a Savior or a judge. Make sure you take me as a Savior. In Revelation chapter 6 and verse 16, the Bible says there's going to come a day when they're going to face Jesus. The faith, the wrath of a lamb. Terrible things of rejecting Jesus. So I think he's saying, while we're in the way, make sure you make things right with the judge of the universe. I think he is speaking about Lord himself. And he said, because God will exact the uttermost part. There is no ability to have purgatory, to purge your sins away. No, you will have to pay the uttermost. If you reject Jesus as a Savior, you'll have to face him that's what he's saying here. Divine justice is very real. I close with this. A defendant is on trial for murder in Oklahoma. There was very strong evidence indicating guilt. But there was no court. In the defense's closing statement, the lawyer, knowing his client, would probably be convicted Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have you a surprise for you all. He then looked at his watch. Within one minute, the person that my client is presumed to have killed in this case 
will walk into this garden. We then look towards the courtroom door. The jurors, stunned, all of course, looked at the door eagerly. A whole minute passed, and nothing happened. Finally, the lawyer said, Actually, I just made up that previous But you all looked on with such anticipation. I, therefore, put it to you today that there is reasonable doubt in this case as to whether anyone was ever really killed. And I insist to you that you return a verdict of conscience. The jury, stunned, confused, went to deliver. Only a few minutes later, they came back and returned and announced a verdict of guilty. The defense lawyer was incredulous. How? You must have all had doubt. I saw all of you stare at that door. Answered the jury foreman. Oh, we did look, but your client didn't get the door. Friends, I would submit to you this morning that all of us know we're guilty. Maybe not of physical murder. My friend, Jesus, any group of people, is part of All the seriousness of what we're talking about is our heads are bowed and our eyes I believe that the Lord would have us to be very clear of it. If we have hatred in our hearts, God today, before you leave us, in the quietness of this world, I believe the right time is just simply say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me all of my hatred. Towards my faith, towards my children, towards some person, a parent, some friend, some group. Oh, God, forgive me for my hatred, for my maliciousness, for my feelings of vengeance. Oh, God. I confess it right now. Free me, Lord. Jesus. And some just know that somebody else has something against you. He'd just like to say, Lord, I release this. I release this in Jesus' name. I put that under the blood. We can stand with you, please. We would stand with you. Let me pray for each of you. For those of you that are here, we hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.